Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 9th, 2018. It's a Tuesday. Time for a Just Jack Standalone show. Episode 2308 is going to be called How Close is the Original United States Government to an Anarchy? And it, it's not a trick question. Also note, I didn't say um, it was, and I didn't even say how close it was. I, I, I just asked the question. It's, it's funny how th sometimes when you do that, it like triggers people. Oh, 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 they're indignant, right? Because the answer could be, well, not at all. You don't get indignant about it until you actually consider the question. That's just going to be one of many things we talk about today. You know, actually considering questions and considering what things mean before we just take for granted what they mean, or take for granted what the answer is, or take for granted what the person proposing the concept means. we got a lot of stuff like that to talk about today. Um, but I'll tell you what, I am a voluntarist, also known as an anarchist. So a lot of times people wonder, why, why Jack, do you even care about things like the U.S. government? Why do you even care about things like the United States Constitution? Um, I think by the time I'm done with this episode, it'll be really clear In short, up front, though, I do consider most elected officials as thieves. I really do. But they are thieves with a contract that they should be at minimum adhere to. And the sad fact is most Americans have zero understanding of that contract, its genesis, or their individual role in it. Who they are in the contract versus who the federal government is in the contract. What if I told you the federal government is not party to the contract that is the United States Constitution. They are not a party to the contract. I know you just, like, if you haven't heard this before, if you haven't seen us talk about it on social media, your eyes are rolling so far back into your head, you're in danger of transferring yourself into another dimension in space and time. Because that just sounds completely preposterous. I'm going to explain to you why I believe that's the case today. And as I, as I kind of go through this intro segment, I want to explain something to you guys. I do consider myself a student of the Constitution. I do not consider myself a constitutional scholar. I'm not going to sit here and go through individual cases and cite legal precedent today. I'm going to talk to you about this entire concept of the Constitution as what it really is. It is a contract. Some people say, it's not a contract. It's the supreme law of the land. How does a law exist without it being a contract? And the answer is it doesn't. Some parties had to enter into agreement to establish it. And by the very nature of that concept, you can call it a supreme law, you can call it the highest law in the country, but it is a law dictated by a contract. If you have multiple parties come together that form an agreement that is binding, it's a contract. So no matter how you look at it, no matter how many people with, with different tendencies in different directions want to change that, it is a contract. The key is, who is party to it? We'll get into all of that more in just a bit, and I think you'll understand why I care and why I think you should too by the time we get to the end of this. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. 
Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Look, guys, I say it all the time because it's the truth. Gun, no ammo, expensive club. That's all that it is. What makes a gun capable of doing its job is, you know, we call it fishing the terminal tackle. Imagine you had the greatest fishing rod in the world. You even had the line on it. You had no lures, no weights, no bait, no hooks. What good is that fishing rod? It can do other things that, like, a lot of things can do that are a long whip-like thing. You could, I don't know, maybe whip some trees with it or something like that, but it, it won't catch you fish. You got to have something to put on the end of it. That's your terminal tackle. When it comes to your rifle and your handguns, you need terminal tackle. You need something that actually does the job on the other end of things. If not, just go get a club. So you got to have ammo. You got to have lots of it. And you don't want to pay too much for it. We call it the other precious metal, but it shouldn't cost as much as silver and gold. It's just copper jacketed lead. So if you want to get your ammo at a fair price with lightning fast shipping and excellent customer service, you need to tool on over to where? BulkAmmo.com and make sure you get your discount if you're an MSB member because they do offer one as just not supporters of the show but the MSB and the community as a whole as well. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. This is from the people that originally brought you over two decades of Backwoods Home Magazine. It is Backwoods Home run by the descendants of the original founders uh, of Backwoods Home, now as Self-Reliance Magazine for the modern era. You know, When Backwoods Home started, guys, there was no internet. Al Gore didn't invent it yet. Yes, I said that facetiously. But seriously, there was no internet. I mean, people like me that were computer nerds, we were getting online with dial-up modems to chat boards and stuff like that. There's nothing like the internet. There were no blogs. There, were not, there wasn't a million websites out there with articles. There, it wasn't the electronic age yet. We were still fixing our cassette tapes with, with little pieces of a pencil. I'm, I'm serious, right? So what Backwoods Home did is it evolved into this new publication accepting you know, the modern era that we're in. It's a, it's a fantastic quarterly magazine with a fantastic online component that goes along with it. You need to check it out. It's at self-reliance.com. Some of the best content that I've seen in the last couple of years has come out of that magazine. And I, actually, I'm really excited. I want to tell you something about Self-Reliance Magazine uh, that you know go a little bit longer today than usually with a sponsor segment. I'm actually really excited about this because I didn't know how they were going to handle this. I really didn't, because the problem for anybody that's in the business of producing a magazine in this world is that there is so much content now. So back in, in the late 80s, when you know Backwoods Home started, if you got that magazine every month or every other month, depending on what frequency you had it, um, or any magazine like it, it was a source of information that was somewhat limited We now have an unlimited amount of information. So now what we're looking for is not just good information. We're looking for the best. We're looking for actionable information. We want it filtered down so that we take time to dedicate to reading and learning. We're getting something that does something for us, not just the same thing repackaged yet again. They've pulled it off with Self-Reliance Magazine. I really recommend you check it out. And they do offer a discount for members of the MSB. And before we get into talking about the Constitution, which is kind of a historical thing at this point, let's uh, let's go back a little bit further into uh, to history, all the way back with David Verne on TSPWiki.com to the year 158, I, 158 A.D. We have garum fish sauce on an industrial scale. One of the most common condiments in ancient Rome was garum, a fermented fish sauce. Garum was made by taking a container and adding a layer of whole fish, then spices, Uh, then a salt layer, two fingers thick, and this order would repeat until the container was full. 
They would then let the open container sit in the sun for a week as it fermented. It was slowly mixed over the course of the next 20 days or more. The mixture would be strained through a cloth, and that liquid passed through was garum. The leftovers were strained out called alec and were used to make all kinds of fish paste. Garum was used to flavor many different foods, including soups, meat, and porridge. Garum could be produced at home, but with demand growing as the empire expanded, it became a major industry in several cities. Factories sprang up across the empire and manufactured garum in large open vats. The smell was so bad these factories had to be located at the edge or completely outside of the cities. Different variations of garum could be made depending on the spices and type of fish, and several brands became famous for their high quality, with one brand costing as much as rare perfumes. As the popularity of garum increased, more brands sprang up and were cheaper and could be sold to the poorer classes. There was even a kosher brand that was guaranteed not to include shellfish. The Roman army was kept supplied with garum by merchants who found they could profit greatly by giving the soldiers a way to, bland, to flavor bland food. As the empire declined and fell, the popularity of garum fell, but it's still produced today in certain areas of Italy. My take by David Verne, mankind's love of condiments hasn't changed since ancient times. With the condiment industry in the U.S. today earning $5.6 billion, the taste of food can be greatly improved by sauce or spice, though this led to a historical myth. The myth goes that before food refrigeration was normally, uh, the, the myth goes that before food refrigeration, uh, food was normally rotten and had to be heavily spiced to cover up the taste and smell. Not only would this have been too expensive, this would have been unhealthy. One of the major reasons we have a sense of taste and smell is to prevent us from eating things that would make us sick. Meat did have to be preserved, but this could be accomplished with salt, which was cheap by the coasts. Okay, so this actually fits really well in with today's show. In a way, I guess maybe you wouldn't think. The myth. I have one of those weird memories. I remember shit that other people forget. Like, this is why I was a good student even though I was a poor student. Like, I got A's on all my tests, and I didn't do all the work I was supposed to do before the tests. Uh, because I could just hear something and remember it. I didn't need to write it down five times so I would remember it. And I remember very clearly in multiple history classes in high school being taught that exact myth. That back in the day, people just hung up a piece of meat out in the market and it was rotting and stinking and had flies on it. And the housewife would take it home and get these expensive spices she had bought from traders that came across, let's say, the Silk Road or something like that and, and spice it up so that it was edible. And I would have believed that. I would, have, I would have defended that. Mr. Larson, Mr. Larson, my, my ass, Dr. Sakavich. I had a Ph.D. history teacher. His name was Dr. Sakavich. This guy was an incredible teacher. He taught me this myth because he was taught this myth and he believed it. Because you trust the people who teach you. Some of the things that I'm going to talk about today, they're going to defy what you would call the common knowledge. I didn't say common sense, it's common knowledge. Remember, at one time, it was common knowledge that, that flies didn't create maggots. Rotted meat did, and then maggots became flies. So if you put out rotted meat, there would just be a spontaneous generation of maggots. We, of course, learned that that wasn't true through the scientific method. And a lot of the things I'm going to say today will defy common knowledge, but not common sense if you really think about them. So just think about that. Think about the fact we have all been taught myths in our education. Things that we grow up and we find out are not true. One of them is the frog in the water analogy. It's an interesting analogy. It does explain how a society can be controlled, but it's not true. And I, of all people, bought into that myth until about 10 years ago when I started doing the show. And I, I, I mentioned it, and somebody said, I don't think that's right. So what's the frog in boiling water myth if you've never heard it? 
You put a frog in water, and it's a comfortable temperature of water, and you very slowly increase the temperature of the water, and the frog will sit there and never try to get out of the water until it boils to death because it doesn't sense the change. It is a good analogy for people, except it's an analogy based on a falsehood. And this is why I should have known. It, see, I, this is important. I, above most, should have known it was bullshit. Why? I am an amateur herpetologist. I have spent a huge part of my life studying, working with, being around reptiles and amphibians simply because I like them. I think they're cool. It's that simple. It's not because I wanted a profession in it or whatever. I just think they're cool. I used to watch you know, Marlon Perkins back in the day when there were only four channels on TV, wrestling, giant snakes and stuff like that. I wanted to do it. So as I got older I, and I had resources, I got into that hobby. And every single... Terrarium, vivarium, etc. that I set up, be it for a reptile or amphibian, I set up a hot side and a cold side to that vivarium so that the animal could do something called thermoregulation. Since they're cold-blooded and they can't produce their own heat, they move from an area that's too cold to one that's warm enough or one that's too warm to one that's cooler. They do this all by themselves. Snakes go out and sit on a hot rock to warm up. When they get too hot, they go down a hole. Right? We all know this. So the concept of slowly boiling a frog makes no common sense, even though it became common knowledge. Just because it's common knowledge doesn't mean it's true. Now, the, the, the counter-argument, and it, it's valid, just because something is common sense doesn't make it true either. It still needs to be examined. And I'll accept that I do not get to be an authority on anything that I'm presenting today. I'm just a voice. And I think that the way I've thought this out is pretty damn solid. So let's go back to the question I asked during the intro segment. Why do I even care about the United States form of government as a voluntarist that sees the state is inherently immoral? Because I believe, just to, to understand, if you've not heard me before or whatever, you're new to the show or at least new to this topic with me, I believe in the actual social contract, right? Not the mythical one that progressives use to tell me why I should have to pay for their health care. I, I don't believe in that contract at all. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a thing, and I never agreed to it. I think humans, so for something to be a social contract, and I know John, again, I'm not going to get all technical with this stuff today. I know John Locke and the roots of that and how that applies to the Constitution uh, and, 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 and familiar familial contracts so that the, the, the child is bound by the, the parents agree. I understand all that. I just don't agree with it. Okay? I just don't agree with it. There is a fundamental human social contract, though that has been universally agreed to by the majority of humans, even though it's often violated. The majority of humans agree with a central social contract, and it is the non-aggression principle. And that contract is, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. If Joe's over there doing whatever Joe's doing with the stuff that Joe has legitimately acquired, no one should interfere with Joe, and no one should take Joe's stuff. And the moment... We agree to the establishment of a state, a central authority. We end up, at some point, hurting Joe and taking Joe's stuff. When Joe doesn't want to be bothered and he doesn't want his stuff taken away. We always do. And we do so under the guise of, well, it would be nice if everybody did that. 
but they won't. So we need a government, and we must restrict that government, but its primary purpose must be to make sure nobody hurts Joe and take his stuff. Now, we're going to have to take some of Joe's stuff for his own good so that other people don't. And if Joe resists that, then we're going to have to hurt him. right? So I find that morally wrong. I don't think you get to have this baseline contract with, with other humans. It's wrong to take stuff from other people, and it's wrong to hurt them. And the only time we should ever take something from them is to right a wrong. In other words, they took it from somebody else. And the only time we should ever hurt them is when they're trying to hurt somebody else. And this is, this is a base. The reason I say this is the original social contract, this is how almost every society throughout history has based the foundation of whatever they used to organize beyond it. And then the question was just how much were they willing to take away to ensure the thing they were destroying? So that's where I'm coming from. You can say it doesn't work. I can say we don't know that. You can say it's never been tried. I can point out and show you how you're wrong, that it hasn't it's actually worked, but that's fine. We don't even have to agree with that. What I'm saying is this is the moral linchpin. This is the foundational stone used to build every single form of a state. And the further you get from it, the less you can actually honor it. The, the moment you form a state, you can no longer fully honor it. The more that state does, the more power that state has, the less it is honored. And therefore, the original reason for the establishment of the state is destroyed by the growth of the state. That's, that's factual. Now, as a pragmatist and a realist, my belief is that it is difficult to protect people from other people. And that there is some level of social order maintained. And even if it's not all good, and most of it probably isn't, the fact that everybody knows the rules and knows the way things are today is pretty much the way that they'll be tomorrow. And can adapt to those rules does help with the establishment of a reasonable social order whereby people can actually exercise the liberty that they are born with. And you could make a case, not that I'll agree with it, but you could make a reasonable case that some level of capitulation on that is worth the stability. The reason I care is when those criminals who organize society, who are actually sociopaths, who want to control what others do and use the force of the state, which is at the point of a gun. The state without the gun has no force and therefore has no authority that those people will always put together some sort of an agreement and they will form a bargain with the people they control and even though there are criminals there is the thing honor among thieves and i expect the criminal to be held to his contract not by his morality not by his sense of decency not even by his sense of honor though i dare use that word but by mandate of the Constitution and the parties that actually created the contract, which is the Constitution. So that's why I care, because they set this up and they agreed to it. I would prefer that they followed it, at least somewhat. Before we go forward, though, I want to talk about something that's really important to understand in all this. 
That is principles versus politics of the day. And I'll give you a couple examples. Recently, I put out a meme on Facebook. And what it said is, I do not want to live in a country where a man can be convicted in either the court of public opinion or a court of law due to an, to an, due to an allegation absent any evidence. And the fact that so many do should scare the shit out of anyone who values freedom and liberty. Now, because of the timing, the Kavanaugh incident, it's about Kavanaugh. The funny thing is that while I did release it because that's kind of the environment that we're in right now, that's a political decision, even for me, I actually wrote that years ago. I don't even remember what the actual issue was, but I actually think it pertained more to the left than to the right. It was completely converse. The principle is fundamental. The politics of the day are shifting. And the reason that people would be either happy about that statement or offended by it, upset by it, triggered by it, is because of the politics of the day. The same person that was pissed off when I put that out, if it was put out at a different time, would say, that's right. And the people that were cheering it today would boo it tomorrow. And that is because we have been lulled into a point in society where we take preference above principle. And if we take the principle as fundamental, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, then even when our preferences change, we are anchored by the principle. If we take our preference above our principle, then we are at the whims of the politics of the day, and therefore we are completely and easily controlled by whoever's in power. Because the people in power are not the puppets, that's the politicians, they're the people with their hands up their ass. And they can make the puppets do whatever they want. Now, they got to have a good guy and a bad guy, Right, Because you got to follow the Disney formula. There's always the evil, and there's always the good. There's no gray. It's really obvious. Cruella de Vil wanted to kill all the little puppies. That's, that's evil. There's, there's no middle ground in the Disney formula. Well, that's what you do. The problem is when it's something as large as a country, you're going to have people that think the bad guy is the good guy, and the good guy is the bad guy. So what you have to do is you have to create a two-party fundamental system that allows people to choose their own bad guy, and therefore everybody that chose the other bad guy as their good guy is their enemy. Now they're completely controllable. This is extinguished like darkness is by light, by the adherence to principle over preference. It is that simple. When one takes the stance of these principles are valid, and takes them independent of politics, and then re returns to politics with them, they're immune to this bullshit. It becomes a bullshit vaccine. The kind of vaccine you should be getting, a good one. Um, with that in mind, let's talk about the picture that I chose for today. I got a picture of Mr. Jefferson, Thomas, that is, and I put the following as a caption in this picture. It's now making this round through social media. The man who reads nothing at all is better educated than the man who reads nothing but newspapers. I, I remind you that this was said by Thomas Jefferson, who's been dead a while. He's been dead a while. Died on the same day as John Adams. I ain't seen him around lately either. 
there's already tension on this because this is pro-Trump. It's pro-Trump. It's fake news. Wow. Okay. Wait. Well, hold on. Huh. See, this is a principle, and it isn't even really just about the news. What Jefferson was saying here is if you get your information from a source and only a source, you are biased by that source. You're better off getting no input information at all and just looking around you and seeing the way things are. If you're to educate yourself, your information must come from multiple sources because any source can and will be biased. But today, this is a defense of Trump. What do you bet that there was a time during Barack Obama's administration that I could have put this same picture up and been accused of taking Obama's side and being wrong for it. See, the principle didn't change. The politics of the day did. And that's why you have to have a contract in our Constitution that's principle-based. Without that, you have nothing. And if the people that are party to the contract do not understand their roles in that contract, then they become subject to the, the, to the politics of the day. And the people in the contract that were supposed to have the least power, because they weren't even party to it, they were the creation thereof, end up with all the power. Sounds crazy? No, let's start this out. I say the United States federal government is not party to the contract that is the Constitution of the United States. They're not party to it. I didn't say they weren't part of it. They're not party to it. And I'll explain it with the creation of a company. Let's say that you and I and 98 other people decide we're going to create a limited liability company called Blue Widgets, LLC. We're all going to have one equal share. We're 1% partners in that LLC. When we file, that's kind of crazy. I would never do that. That's just insane. But let's just say we did. Because 100 is an easy number to make fractions out of, right? So... We all get together, and to do this, we will file with a state agency. Let's say the state of Texas. We're going to be in Texas LLC. But we will, to do that, we will be required to maintain something called an Articles of Incorporation. This will dictate how the company is run. It will dictate how much say each of us have. It will dictate, for instance, are we going to have a manager? What about a board of directors? What about a chairman of the board? What about a chief executive? How will those decisions be made? But the end result, when we finally execute that contract, will be the creation of an entity known as Blue Widgets LLC. Blue Widgets LLC is not party to the contract that created it. It can't be. It didn't exist until the day the contract was executed. Therefore, it could not participate in the contract. Okay? You did not participate in your creation by your parents. Your parents were party to a biological activity that created you. You were the result. You didn't exist until they made you. Got it? That's why your dad says, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out of it, right? That And that's important. I brought you into this world, I'll take you out of it. So, who were the parties? Well, let's, let's just take it a little bit further because there's an objection here that is somewhat valid, but it's also invalid. What people will say is, well, we had something called the Articles of Incorporation, or the Articles of Confederation. It's funny how those legal terms sound the same, right? Articles of Confederation, Articles of Incorporation. And that was our first limited uh, federal government. It was extremely limited, by the way. And that, so the people that were part of that were party to the new Constitution. No. The, the 
creation of the new contract, the first thing it did was dissolve the old. They were no more valid in it than anybody else who participated in it as an individual. And it doesn't matter. That contract wasn't with the entity. And it wasn't created by the entity that was the, the, the original central government. It was created by the following. A contract between 13 individual states. The states created the contract. The states, therefore, formed the central government. The central government is a result of the formation of the contract that is the Constitution. It is not party to it. Now, because the states, in of themselves, were representative democracies, they were act the reason they had the authority to form the agreement is their own individual constitutions allowing them to act on behalf of their people. Therefore, the Constitution of the United States is a contract between the member states and the people thereof. Forming an entity known as the central government that is beholden at all times to the parties that created the contract. It doesn't mean they don't have power. It means that all their power comes from the contract that we control. And you can understand this and how extreme it really is supposed to be by the amendment process. You can have a constitutional amendment that the Congress, and think of the Congress like your board of directors, and think of your president like your chairman or your CEO. We're kind of a hybrid of both. And those guys can get together and say, we want to change our contract. We don't just want to operate under the authority we've been given. We want a new amendment to the Constitution. And there's a process for them to initiate that. And what still has to happen? What still has to happen for that contract to be altered? Even when they meet their, bo their, their, their bogey, they get enough buy-in to propose an amendment. That amendment then must be sent to the individual states for ratification. It's, it, it's more than a check on power. It's an assertion of who's actually in control. We, we are entrusting you guys to run the company, i.e. country. We're giving you powers to do it with. You may propose an amendment. First, you've got to get your own people to agree to it, and then you've got to come to us to approve it. However, the same is not true for the states. The states do not need any approval whatsoever from the federal government because it's not party to the contract to alter the contract. We can have a convention of the states. The states can get together, and if enough of the parties to the contract, which are the member states, say, we are altering the contract, up and to the point of this amendment hereby absolves the contract, and all the states are now independent. It is completely legal under the existing contract. And you couldn't find an honest constitutional scholar to tell you otherwise. They would tell you it's unlikely, and I agree, but it would not be illegal. Now, this isn't the same as the South seceding, because that contract would have required a constitutional amendment, not just a secession, that said these states no longer are part of the Union. Been interesting if that approach had been tried, especially with the Convention of the States. Wonder what would have happened. I don't know. I don't pretend to. I'm just saying. You see the difference there. One state saying, I'm just not doing this anymore and going off on its own, is a breach of contract, but not with the central government. It's a breach of contract with the other states.
I've been asked about this when I put this out before. So what about states that came in after the contract? They came through as an approved state based on what the contract said under those conditions. When that state joined the union, they knew what they were getting into. They could read the contract and thereby became bound by it. So the contract is binding, but the contract creates power for an entity we call the federal government. In the end, it completely restricts the power of the federal government because the states at any time can change the rules. And the federal government has to ask the states and the people to change the rules. Do you see how different that is? And, and why that's really important. But there's a lot of things that came around and kind of screwed this stuff up. One is something called the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. And, and this is another thing that most people um, do not understand about the Bill of Rights. People think, they say things like, I have a right to free speech because of the First Amendment. Some people say, you have a God-given right to free speech, therefore it's protected by the First Amendment. But it was never intended that, let's say, the state of Maryland could not put something into place that would impede that right when the Bill of Rights was executed, when it was originally ratified. This is very difficult for people to understand because we've been so convinced that, number one, the Bill of Rights gives us rights instead of protecting them. But two, that like everybody always just saw it the way that it is now. The states who formed the contract as parties to the contract on behalf of their people to create, not with the federal government, to create the federal government, never trusted the federal government. They never trusted the federal government not to interfere in the lives of their individual citizens and themselves. Now understand, there's a, there's a whole battle for power here. Our founders were brilliant. They also wanted to turn themselves into a new aristocracy, but they wanted enough safeguards that if a new group rose and became the aristocracy, they wouldn't be able to take away everything the old aristocracy had. Power, you give up. Wealth, you don't. Influence, you don't. That's what they wanted. So they were forced to protect us by their desire to protect themselves. They're not saints, but they were smart. So when the, the Constitution was ratified, it wasn't just protecting the people, but the states and the state legislatures protecting their own individual rights. They didn't want the federal government to be able to come into your state and start telling you what you could say or what you could do or what weapons you could own. But they did not want to give up their right to legislate the same thing. And this is because federalism was a big deal. They understood the value of federalism. They understood that government would be corrupted. And that people would do stupid shit. And that as long as people had freedom of movement and they could go choose their new government at any time, that a lot of these things would be self-correcting over time. That if Pennsylvania was dumb enough, then enough people might move to Virginia to make Pennsylvania go, hmm, maybe we need to be a little bit more like Virginia. And I'm not picking favorites. If Virginia was stupid enough to do things that made people move to Pennsylvania, the same thing. Just like there's a whole shitload of people that ended up in Kentucky due to the federal government's actions in Pennsylvania with the Whiskey Rebellion. I'm serious. There were people that figured out, if I just go a little further west, they'll leave me alone. That wasn't actual federalism, but it was federalism uh, by proxy, basically. So this concept of federalism is what drove the concept of the Bill of Rights restricting the federal government, not the state government. 
Because the states had different ideas about what should and should not be. And to form that consortium, they had to make allowances for each other. So the states would have never ratified the Bill of Rights if it applied to them. Over time, we had something called the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. And contrary to popular belief, not all of the rights have been incorporated. The First Amendment, Second Amendment, and Fourth Amendment have been fully incorporated. The Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, and Eighth Amendment have been partially incorporated to restrict the states. And the Third Amendment and the Seventh Amendment have not been incorporated at all and still only apply to the federal government. Now, the Third Amendment is, is, is you know, you're right not to have to quarter troops. So you kind of see a place here, only when the states violated their right do people go and try to get the constitutional protections. And a huge part of how this all happened was the 14th Amendment which, among other things, guaranteed equal protection under the law. And it is not the only thing by which it was argued, but much of the arguments for the incorporation of the Bill of Rights lied under an amendment, therefore became valid in the contract that this is preventing equal protection under the law. It's not hugely important, but it's, it's important to understand that states actually should have a lot more power than they do. And you'd say, well, isn't that frightening? Not if, not if you have 50 laboratories of liberty. Not if each state truly gets to, to run its own show. Because then I do believe the things that work best will actually prove themselves as working best. And the more the federal government does, ironically, the less federalism works. The federal income tax has a drastic reduction on how much advantage there is to live in one state over the other when one state has a lower tax rate. Because everybody's taxed heavily to begin with. And the wealthiest citizens being taxed higher by the federal government, you know, therefore when they go to a state, they, they, don't, they don't get as, they, they will be hit differently than a poor person that goes to a different state. Because that big chunk the federal government takes equalizes it, not to the dollar, but to the point of making the decision. And we have, we should have probably never incorporated the Bill of Rights. The, the individual rights being protected as constitutional should have been battles fought within each state with amendments to those individual states' constitutions. I am open to being wrong on this one. But this is how I feel, because I do believe the more you could see in a difference between Florida and Texas, the greater the opportunity for federalism to work. And this is going to go back, I'm going to tie back in now to anarchy, because all of this just sounds like a bunch of government and a bunch of statism. Anarchy is not the absence of rules, but the absence of rulers. And in an anarchy, people should be able to choose their form of governance up until the point that it violates the rights of another. It hurts someone or takes their stuff. A federal republic is the closest form of government to an anarchy you can get if there is truly significant differences that are not mitigated by a central authority to being able to pick and choose what you want and how you want to live and how the people around you choose to live as well. And that was true when there were only 13 
but it is far more true with 50, isn't it? Think about the true freedom that would exist if states truly had to compete with each other to get citizens to come be with them. And they did not have the ability through things like federal mandates and federal redistribution of wealth to fund their lunacy out of the pockets of someone in another state. Do you think if California got no federal money, they would have as much uh, state-level stupidity that they do? It wouldn't even be out of whether they had a desire to do it or not. They wouldn't be able to pay for it. The federal government acting as Robin Hood and leveling the playing field by making everybody do the same stuff has destroyed that choice that we once had. You want anarchism, a good place to start is an actual constitutional republic in the form of a representative democracy, which we don't really have at this point. We have kind of an amalgamation. But what are we supposed to be? See, this is another thing I want to talk about. I, I, I get tired of people that think in absolute terms with no actual thought. So the left is fond of saying, it's a democracy, it's a democracy, you're destroying democracy, the will of the people, democracy, democracy. You just sound like idiots. Okay. So then what does the right do? Do they correct it or do they go to their own absolute that's not based in fact? It's not a democracy, it's a republic, you idiot. In fact, it's a constitutional republic. Okay. And they say it as if those words alone are some sort of magic. To create an exceptional form of government. Do you know another nation that is a constitutional republic? North Korea is a constitutional republic. They are a republic, and they are controlled by a constitution. It says some pretty shitty things, and actually, it actually says things that are not followed. So with a constitutional republic, there's a couple things we need to have. One, the constitution needs to provide protections and freedoms of the people from government for it to be useful. Two, the government has to be forced to comply with it. And three, the people have to have a say in it. Just because it's a constitutional republic doesn't mean the people have a say in it. China is a constitutional republic. I looked it up. It says it's a dictatorship. You can have a constitutional republic that is a dictatorship. The Soviet Union was a constitutional republic. It had a constitution, and republic was right in the name. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. An oligarchy is a form of a republic. What is a democracy? Well, it depends. You have a pure democracy. Everybody votes on every decision, and the majority, or the agreed-upon required number. So you can have a democracy where you have to have 70% to get something done. In a way, that's kind of part of how the United States works. Three-fourths of the states to amend the contract. That's an example. It is a vote. It is democratic, but the bogey was set higher than 51%, avoiding something known as tyranny of the majority. Okay, And there's a lot of other ways that it does that. But the United States is, I know you're going to get mad. The further right you are, the matter you're going to get when I say this. The United States is a democracy. The United States is a constitutional republic. The United States is accurately defined as a representative, re representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic. We are not a pure democracy. We are a representative democracy. We vote for people who then vote for things. 
We have different ways we elect different people that do that. And the form of government we have is known as republicanism, and it has nothing to do with the Republican Party at all. In fact, the states, by the contract we're discussing there, the contract that is the Constitution, are required in of themselves to have republican forms of government. And a lot of people don't know that either. But we are a constitutional republic in the form of a representative democracy, or you can flip those words around and go the other way. We are not a pure democracy, and being a republic doesn't mean jack squat without the Constitution and adherence to it and the ability of people to participate in decision-making through a democratic process. It is not as simple as either side makes it, and what do I always say? When you get down to, you know, when you get down to catchphrases, you're almost always wrong. Catchphrases don't have to be wrong, but they almost always are, and even when they're not, they're always misused. If something can be said in five words or less, and it's talking about a complex issue, it's probably not inclusive enough to be factual. Even if it's fact-based, it can't be 100% factual because it's too complex of an issue. Are we a democracy or are we a republic? We are both. And I defy, it's like I've been open to being wrong about some things today. I defy you to prove me wrong about that. Does the United States not elect its officials in a democratic process? Yes. Okay, i.e. it's a democracy. It's a republic. It is also a republic. It's a constitutional. It is also a constitutional republic. We don't vote on everything. It is a representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic. Quit spitting out catchphrases. It makes you look dumb to the people that are actually informed, and the people that are equally locked into a catchphrase that's counter to yours don't care what you have to say. You have to actually explain these things, and to explain them, you must understand them. Um, then I want to get to an amendment that's completely legal under the contract, And what we're doing today is completely legal, but I believe it's one of the biggest mistakes that we could have made. And that's an amendment that most people aren't even aware of what it is. I'll take you know, if I could give you a well, they might know how many amendments there are. So if you say, is there a 17th amendment? They're like, yeah. I wonder how many people would be, oh, there's, there's like three or something. But yeah, what is it? Even people that know what the 18th amendment was, they don't know what the 17th was. One of the most monumentous shifts of our nation, and most people don't even know what it was. You probably heard about it for about three and a half seconds in history class and forgot about it. And you were probably told it was a good thing, and you probably did no examination whatsoever of the implications of it, or why it was necessary, and what was before it, and why it was that way. The 17th Amendment is the amendment that changed the way that we have senators elected in our nation. Your federal senator, your guy that goes to Washington for you. The hundred clowns that just went and did the Kavanaugh debacle. Those people. Those are all popularly elected officials today. Your state gets two, you get to vote for both of them. Okay. And you look at some of them and you wonder, how does a clown like that get there? Well, they had, you know, the ability to campaign well. They had, they were well funded. Uh, their last name was the same as their father's. And even though they had no qualifications whatsoever, Murkowski, they ended up being a senator. Okay? Like, this is how these people get into office. It's become a legacy of family name. It's become a legacy of wealth. It's become who will 
prostitute themselves harder to the political action committees to get people elected because the more you are using a populist form of election, the more the public is subject to those whims. And the larger the place you're electing somebody from, generally speaking, the worse the candidates. Think about it. I mean, if, if you've ever actually met with any of your elected officials, and I have, meeting with someone that's like your state senator that goes to, for me to Austin, or someone that's your state representative that also goes to Austin for the, the Texas House of Representatives, you can generally have a reasonable conversation with that person, and you can generally, I mean, they get bought out and everything too. But in the end, they're a lot more accessible, they're a lot more normal, and they end up, when you start digging down, being infinitely, in most instances, not always, but in many instances, more qualified. They actually know the people that they live in the district of, and they actually live a pretty similar way to them. Well, these people used to appoint senators. And it's a lot easier to completely buy off the state to vote for this clown versus that clown than it is to go in individually and buy off each district one at a time. And it's important to understand, because this is going to sound partisan, it's not. It's a fundamental statement of fact. The purpose of the Senate was to be conservative. Not the way you're thinking when you hear the word. Conservative from the standpoint of we really need to think before we change something. If things are working now, then we have to have a compelling argument that things will work better and there won't be any unintended consequences before we change them. Conservative from the standpoint of a good investment advisor. People think, conservative is awful. We should be liberal and change all the time. Go get an investment advisor to do that and you'll be losing your ass now, won't you? You want your investment advisor to be conservative. If you hire someone to take a, a small ship, something that maybe can house 30 people, and take you across the ocean in the middle of storm season, you want a conservative captain. Right? You want a conservative captain. Because you don't want somebody who goes, the hell with it, we'll just go right to the middle of that thing. It's, I don't, they called it Ivan, it can't be that bad. Ivan's a good guy, I know him. You don't want that. You want the conservative approach in certain situations. However, if you only have the conservative approach, no one would have yet stepped foot on the top of Mount Everest. Man would not have walked on the moon if we took always the conservative approach. There is a point for a liberal approach. We're going to try something new. We're going to try something different. And that was the original concept of the words before they were wrapped up in GOP and progressivism and socialism and blah, 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 blah. The concept of the base words is what we're talking about here. And the House was supposed to be liberal. By being subject to popular vote in a smaller area, was supposed to be more of the voice of the people, and the Senate was to be the voice of the states. And thereby it would create balance, and we would be open to new things and change, but we would be anchored with conservative ideals that we only change things when it really makes sense. Not just because it's popular today. That was the balance. And when we changed how we elected our senators, we lost that balance. Making my point, if we did that today, you would have over 60 senators that were Republicans. 
Now, I think the Republican Party would look a lot different. And the Democratic Party would look a lot different, too. They might not even be called that, for all I know, at this point in history. But there would be a major difference in how the nation ran. In fact, it was the progressives, the early progressives, which were a nicer way of saying communists, who pushed that amendment through with popularism. And they made a case to people, you're so much better off this way. Why shouldn't you choose your senator? Why should those clowns down in Austin do it? Well, you choose the clowns in Austin. And if you want to change a state house member or a state senate member, it's actually pretty easy to do. If the people in that district have decided, we don't want this guy anymore, he's gone. I'm not saying they don't get reelected a lot, because they do. But if you actually wanted to get rid of them, it's pretty easy to do. And most people today cannot tell you the name of their state representative or their state senator. They have no idea who they are. They might even vote for it. They're people that vote all the time. They get a straight ticket or they, oh, yeah, oh, I heard of him. I saw a sign for him. He's a Democrat and I'm a Democrat. Vote. They don't know. They don't know. And to be fair, people focus on the place with the most power. And the people with the most power now are supposed to be the people with the least because they weren't party to the contract, federal government. Federal government is supposed to have the least power and your state on your behalf is supposed to have the most. But it's very natural for you to do what? Pay attention to the people with more power. Who has more power? Today, the federal government does, even though they're not supposed to. So you'll look at your federal senator, at least when there's a hearing and he's on it, and it's something you care about. You tend to ignore your state-level politics. If the way you controlled who your state senator was was through your state legislature, don't you think you'd pay a little more attention to it? So then why do the states let it happen? It doesn't sound like it's in their best interest. Well, it actually is. See, by the time this happened, we had already gotten well along in the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. The federal government already had more power, not as much as us today, but already had more power than it should have. The, the state legislatures knew the direction that the wind was blowing, and being politicians and slimy, they were happy to sell you out. Because they knew then they would be able to play the game all politicians play, the grab-ass-he-did-it game. Well, we do the best we can here for you in Pennsylvania, but those clowns out in D.C. And then your senator knew he would just get up there and go, I'm going to go fight for Pennsylvania. No, you're not. No, you're not. What, you're going to ask for your share of the earmarks when they come out the other side of the sausage machine? You're not fighting for Pennsylvania. You're not fighting for Florida. You're not fighting for anybody. You're not fighting for Texas, California, wherever the hell you're from. You're not fighting for that state. You're up there making deals with the other scumbags in that group of 100 people. For yourself. And try to maintain your position of power. That's what you're doing. Because in the end, if you come from a state that always re-elects a Republican, once you're an incumbent, unless you get into real hot water, you're going to get re-elected. Jesus could come back and they could run him as your opposing party. You're still going to win. So what incentive do you have? But if your state legislature just goes, yeah, you know, That's not what we sent you there to do. Guess what? Next appointment, you're out. Or, though it was never done, it would have been possible for a state legislature to recall a senator. Specifically because the Constitution charged them, the states, with making the appointment. It did not tell them how to write their own constitutions. So, there was no mandate 
that that senator must remain. It says appointed for a term of six years. There's nothing that, that says, and here is the means by which you can remove your senator. It leaves it open to interpretation. So the state of Florida could put together a constitution that says by a, a vote of the legislature of three-quarters of or more, a senator may be recalled and replaced at any time. The state of Texas could say, after a service period of three years or greater, with a vote of 60% of the legislature, they could do it however they wanted. They could have any recall procedure they wanted for their senators. In fact, we in some states we do today, we have recall procedures for elected officials. They spell it out for themselves. This effectively would have made a, your senator an extension of your state legislature. And thereby, a conduit for communications with how pissed off the people were. It was a balance. And it, again, increased federalism, thereby increasing the difference in your life if you lived in one state versus the other. And thereby, it was. I didn't say it was, I said it was closer to the concept of anarchy. Choosing your form of government and the people that you follow and the social contract that you actually agree to. So you can't agree to something if you're never given, the, uh, given an alternative. Well, one of the most brilliant people I know is expert council member John Pugliano. Some of you don't know this, John is a practicing Mormon. And one of the places he disagrees with some members of his faith in places like Salt Lake City where they want all these laws that say people can't do this or can't do that or can't do this is that the choice to believe in the Mormon faith is indeed a choice. And if you pass a law with punishment for something that's unique to our faith, then I can't choose to obey it. I've been mandated to obey it by man versus choosing to obey God. A pretty simple thing. And that way it actually is a choice. And that way your contract, whether it's oral, internally moral, written, is all actually at your consent. Without consent, you do not have a contract. You have slavery. So if I have legitimate places that change the way things are, and the more of that I have, the more freedom I have. And if you want a place that is completely totalitarian... As long as you can't compel me to go or compel me to stay, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with that. Because I believe you will shoot yourself in the foot long term and the better way will win out. I have enough faith in my system of morality to know that it's better. And this is why something should happen that won't. A convention of the states. As I said, because the states were the parties to the contract, representing their people, therefore making the contract, a contract between the states and their people, writing the federal government out of any final decision-making whatsoever, always reserving that power through the process of amendment, because the amendment can be to dissolve. The people truly had the power. That was the, that was the bargain the founders who wanted to be the newest aristocracy made to ensure their own stability. We will, in the end, rest the final power with the people and the member states. Because we don't think they'll use it. And we definitely don't think they'll use it enough to upset the apple cart. And over time, the apple cart will get bigger and harder to upset. And then they'll be afraid to turn it over because they'll have a mess. And that's kind of where people are now. People are now afraid to upset the apple cart. When you talk about a convention of the states for new constitutional amendments, 
to do something like term limits, which would just say, let's say a senator can serve two terms and a congressional representative can serve three or four or whatever number you come up with. There is massive support for this on both sides of the aisle. The only people that ever really object to it are politicians and lobbyists. You almost never see the average person truly object to this. It has tremendous popular support, and state legislatures, I think, would support it as well. Okay? Then why won't we do it? Well, people say things like, well, if we have a constitutional convention, convention of the states, they might repeal the Second Amendment. There's not enough support to do it. We absolutely know that will not happen. It can't happen. In fact, it is less likely to happen today than it would be to happen in 25 years. So when would be the time to get this convention of the states together and get the things we agree upon done now? Because then it's going to be hard to upset the apple cart again 25 years later. What would be the best now? What was the best time 50 years ago? But people won't do it because of fear and because of ignorance and because of tribalism, especially new tribalism. Tribalism can be a great thing. It can be a terrible thing. When we start getting into tribes and we start identifying our tribes based on our politics, we've got a problem. And that's exactly why we are where we are today. Democrats, by and large, and I'm talking about not politicians here, I'm talking about people, refuse to meet halfway and work with Republicans, even on what they agree with, and the Republicans are just as bad the other way. You can say, I'm not, it's the, it's the tyranny of the majority now again, isn't it? Well, if you're a Republican, you're repugnant. If you're a Democrat, you're a Democrat. I mean, I hear people use these words, and they've walled off into corners. So even when we get something that's universally agreeable that would be good, politicians are like diapers, they should be changed frequently. Right? I believe that's from uh, Benjamin Franklin. Right? I think you could get 80 to 90% support for term limits in our Congress and Senate. It would be a very easy thing to get buy-in for. I guarantee you if it was proposed as an amendment at the Convention of the States, the legislatures would ratify it because once people understood they had that power, they would burn down the switchboards to the representative state uh, capitals. They absolutely would. They'd realize, like, this is something that is good. But they can't even come together on what they agree on 100%. Now, I know 100% aren't for it. That's not what I mean. The vast majority 100% agree on the concept of term limits. Sufficient majority to get three-fourths of the states to do this and put a restriction on the federal government. But they won't even do that. Fear and apathy and comfort in slavery. The people that run this country today have recognized a long time what the contract is. And you can have a contract that's completely equitable. But if one side knows how to work the contract and the other doesn't due to ignorance and apathy, the other side will gain complete control over everything, including being able to abuse the contract and changing what the contract means, not even changing what it says. There's two different processes by which the contract are altered in our country. There is the legitimate process and the illegitimate, illegitimate process. The legitimate process is we will go by the recognized procedure for amendment to the contract. And that is these things, and we'll go do those, and then everybody gets their say, and it either happens or it does not. 
Okay? The illegitimate way is to simply change what it means. Second Amendment's a perfect example. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I don't care about a well-regulated militia and the comma that comes after it. Doesn't matter. This is legal language and a legal contract. There is no place people are confused by the term shall not in a legal contract other than the Constitution. Any other contract, if it says this thing shall not happen, and you go to court, judge, I don't care if he's a Democrat or Republican or a communist, just looks at it and goes, your contract says you shall not do this, you did this, you're a breach of the contract, done. It's that clear. Because it, it could say, to protect the country from the flying spaghetti monster, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. One is the justification, the other is the thing. The thing is all that matters in the binding components of the contract. Right? So that is a very, very simple thing to understand. Well, now we're going to change what it means. But it doesn't apply to concealed carry. Well, maybe. That must mean that open carry is legal then. You, you, you can't have it both. Like if it says the right of the people to keep and bear, mean to take with you, arms shall not, absolute, be infringed, be be screwed with, okay? Almost said it differently, right? You, you don't get to do this. And this is where we got into trouble. The incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Well, now Tennessee says, I have a reasonable case that I want to restrict this particular thing. Or Florida does. Or Maryland does. Or New York does. Now we have to, now we have to take their desire and apply it uniformly and make a judgment call when we're supposed to be following an absolute. Because the absolute applied to who? Federal government. That's who the absolute applied to. Federal government. It was up to the individual states if they wanted an amendment protecting the right to keep and bear arms to pass that amendment in their state-level constitution. Now, you, I know you're thinking, well, Jack, you should be able to own a gun anywhere you want. Totally agree. But give me an actual constitutional republic where people can actually make that determination for themselves. And I promise you there will be places where that remains sanct. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just, it remains completely cool. All right? Just kind of lost my thought there. It, it remains completely unaltered. And there will be places where it is drastically altered. And then let people decide. Let people choose where they go. In the end, though, what does it matter if it's not going to happen? I can sit here and I can talk about the Constitution for the next two months and not run out of things to tell you that you probably didn't know or that are important to understand, and it won't matter. There's about 200,000 people a day listening to the show. If all 200,000 of you got pissed off and wrote your Congress about this stuff, no one would care. So why does it matter? It matters because it changes how you think and how you act and how you react to the situation around you. It matters because it changes who you are fundamentally. When you change your paradigm and your viewpoints. We didn't just talk about misconceptions about the Constitution today. And as, as we talked about that, I'm sure there were times during today's show, because you're a free-thinking individual, that you thought, uh, Jack's got an interesting take on that, but I think he's wrong. Or Jack's an idiot. That's not the way that is. 
But I guarantee you there's at least some of the things that I've told you today that initially, if you would have heard somebody just make them as a claim, after I gave you the case behind me, you, you know what, I think he's got a point there. I think he's right. I, I didn't, and, or there's other things that it's like, it's not even debatable. You may just not have known. And then when I told you, you're like, okay, well, that's a verifiable fact. So now I, something I was completely convinced was the A way is actually the B way. It doesn't matter if it's political. We just happen to use this thing today because of current events. It's like a good thing to talk about. But the reality is it doesn't matter what, how that happens. It, it's like we also talked about rotted meat today and people eating rotted meat with maggots on it and stuff like that by putting paprika and black pepper on it as though that was a thing. We all believed that when we were taught that in high school, didn't we? I mean, maybe you weren't. But if you were, you believed it and you would have defended it. The frog analogy. right? Even though it's used for politics, that's not political, it's biological. You hear it, you believe it, someone explains to you that it's not true, but yet you've believed it. Now you have to change internally. You don't have a choice. It's how the mind works. Because your mind is a mental computer, and we program our mental computer with words, and our words have certain things we believe to be true or false, like binary code, on or off. Put the frog in the water, da 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 it, it dies. It doesn't try to get out. One for yes. Zero for no. You just change that from a one to a zero if you didn't know that. One line of code gets changed. Lots of lines of code get changed. The reason I wanted to do this today was so you could look at the state in a different way. If you are a Republican or a Democrat, you have a certain bias that you look at the state with. If you're a libertarian, you have a certain bias that you look at the state with. If you are a voluntarist like me, you have a certain bias you look at the state with. We all do. But what I wanted to do was take away the individual bias and just say, what does their own contract say? And first of all, who's in control of that contract, and what does the contract say, and what does it mean, and how does it work, how has it been altered, how has it been altered legitimately under the contract and illegitimately under contract? How have sometimes when we've made alterations to the contract that seemed like a good idea, even though they were legitimate and legal, they were bad ideas? What could be done, even if it won't be done, to make things better? When we examine those things and we look at it from a standpoint of more of an analytical standpoint rather than a perception bias standpoint, We change the way we think. And when we change the way we think, we change the way we act. When you see how illegitimate a lot of the authority of the state is in today's world, you stop providing what's known as consent of the governed. There's two types of consent of the governed. There's the one that they use to justify their bullshit. Okay? But there's also the, I'll give you what you want as a citizen, consent of the governed. Which sometimes has to do with laws. And sometimes has to do with just the things you're supposed to do. Oh, I'm supposed to go to college. I'm supposed to go on a debt. And you can put a hundred other things in there. There's just some common ones. And we give consent to the governed not just by obeying the law or by voting or by recognizing their authority. We, we, we give consent by our actions, especially our individual actions, which I'm way more concerned with than the actions of the collective. How you live your life. Do you live your life in a way that gives consent to you being governed by people who don't even know you? Or do you live your life in a way where you define for yourself what morality really is? Adhere to principle above preference. And live your life that way. 
The way you change the collective is you start by changing the individuals and you change the mindset. There would be a tipping point if enough people began to think with principle over preference, which I'm so grateful to Vin Armani for coining that phrase. Remember today I said you can't just use a phrase to answer a complex argument? There are exceptions. When the statement is a complete truth, you can And a complete truth is always true. It's not situational. It's not complete. It's incomplete. That's why catch, catchphrases, even when they're true, they're not true everywhere. So when we try to use them as a blanket way to apply an argument, they always fail. Principle above preference is the complete truth because it's true all the time. There are certain principles that we can agree upon that we should do, that we should follow, and the way we should lead our lives. And then when something offends our preference, but the principle is clear, we stand on the principle. You see how simple that is. That's why they don't teach it. See, simple means not necessarily easy to do. It means easy to understand. It's easy to understand. Can you imagine if our government-run schools taught the concept of don't hurt people, don't take their stuff, and put principle above preference? Imagine the difference in our society. They're not going to do it. As parents, it's up to you to do it. But before you can teach something, you have to learn it. They say those that can't do teach. I guess in a bureaucracy that might be the case. But if you're actually an effective teacher, you damn well better be able to do what you're teaching. So if you want to teach others to put their principle above their preference, then you have to do it yourself. And it will always be uncomfortable. Defending Judge Kavanaugh from a witch hunt attack while vehemently disagreeing with his stance on the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution was very difficult for me to do. But the principle is an accusation, absent evidence, cannot be used to destroy a man. Period. You cannot let an accusation destroy a person. You cannot let it cost them their job. You cannot let it cost them their liberty. You cannot let it cost them their opportunity if there is no evidence to go with the accusation. It doesn't matter. Don't like the guy. Doesn't matter. Not with this thing. Not here. The ends do not justify the means. That's how communists think. The ends justify the means. And the people that swear that they are the ultimate enemy of communists... And socialists, the right, practice the same preference, right? Well, yeah, but. No, well, yeah, but. There's pragmatism, but pragmatism acknowledges the conflict. Pragmatism acknowledges the conflict. Pragmatism is, I don't like this guy. Best we're getting under the circumstances, so I'm going to support him. I may not agree with you, but at least you're pragmatic and you're adhering to your principle. At that point. At that point, you're adhering to your principle because you're acknowledging the conflict and you're accepting it as a concession. That's called a compromise. It's not always bad. But when it's a principle, when it's a principle, then we have to stand opposed to things that violate the principle. Even if we exemplary, you know, eventually accept them. In principle, I don't want you to die. But if you get cancer and it's you know it's like fatal can terminal cancer, I I have to accept it. 
And some of the things in our society, because we're not in control of everything, we actually control a very small sphere around ourselves, there's points where we have to accept those things. And then we have to choose how we, how we, how we deal with them. But the principle, see, that's internal. I don't ever have to, in my heart and in my soul, I never have to compromise my principles. Never. Even when I'm doing something against them, I can say, I'm only doing this because I have to. I don't want to go to prison. If I don't do this thing, it's going to hurt more people worse, whatever it is. But what we do when we do that to ourselves is we put ourselves into a gut check position. Do I really have to? Do I really have to? And when you say, no, I don't, then you can stand on the principle in action. But you can always stand on the principle as a moral, a moral imperative. And by examining these things today, what I hope I've done for you is put you in touch with that to some degree so that that is now more of who you are. So that when you hear somebody say something and it matches what you what you wish was true. You don't just embrace it and repeat it. You check it. We need to more check the things that match our perception than the ones that don't match our perception. We're quick to try to disprove the things that do not match our perception bias. The things that do, we hold on to them. We hold them up as evidence. We don't even verify them. That's not good enough. But I think when you have enough things held up and explained to you, And your response is, no, nah, that's bullshit. And then you get to explain and you actually listen to it and you go, oh, that's real and I was wrong all this time. The more principled as a person you become. Because every time you let go of one of those things, it hurts a little bit. You let go a little bit of what you were. But you say to yourself, just like when you have an accident, right? I don't want that to happen again. I don't want that to happen again. Well, how many times do you say that before you start to say, hey, I need to check this stuff. I need to find out. I need to know. That's what today's show is all about. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your online shopping at a website called tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com and you do your online shopping through there, you help the survival podcast and the work we do no matter what you buy. And I also have daily reviews for you. Today is one I'm bringing back for like third or fourth time now. And I don't usually bring back you know electronics products a lot over three or four years because, well, You know, electronics improve and get better. This little thing, I'm putting my hand on mine right now. I always say if it's on T-SPAS, I own it, I use it, or I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I do this show every day, and I have to upload stuff, and it goes across my Internet connection. And to do that, it goes across my router. My router is the TP-Link Archer 7. Um, and it is, in the words of the New York Times, who I seldom agree with, but they got it right here, the best router for the most people. I didn't say it would be the best router for you. I said it would be the best router for the most people, which means it will probably be the best router for you. Short phrases can be accurate, too, if they're very specific. In this case, we're very specific there. The best router for the most people. I love it that it works, and I love it that a person that's not got a degree in computer science can use the startup guide, get it hooked up, get it working, install the app on your phone, see all the devices, You can set limits to what your kids can do. You can set up a guest network. Even if you don't understand what I'm saying, I'm telling you it's so simple and so intuitive you can do it. If you can work your smartphone, you can use this thing like a pro, and it always works. That's what I love about it. It puts out a lot of signal. 
I also have a, a network extender that's linked to in the article if you need to extend it even further. My house is difficult. I've got metal buildings. I've got brick walls. I got all, it's a big, long house because the garage was turned into part of the house, etc. And I always played hell getting signal across the house, getting everything to work. Since I put this thing in, I haven't had a single problem. In fact, I had so many problems, I was nasty to the poor girl on the phone line to Spectrum, Charter Spectrum, because I kept having so many problems and I was convinced it was something they were doing. And, and when, I, when, I, when I put this router in and it went away, I felt like trying to track down that last tech I talked to and find her and apologize to her for being mean because it was my dad gone router. This thing doesn't do that. It works. Check it out. The Archer uh, 7 by TP-Link. Best router for the most people. And you can always do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is by Chris Ledoux. I talked about Chris Ledoux and his work ethic yesterday. I mean, this is a guy who was a saddle bronc cha champion in, in the rodeo. Um, came from nothing to that, by the way. But also always wanted to make music. Made 19 records in 19 years all on his own label, all self-labeled. I, I, it amazed me people want to be musicians today, and, and they're not putting out a song a day on YouTube. This guy did 19 records when you had to make a record, when it was expensive. They mailed tapes from their house. They sold them through feed stores. He had an incredible work ethic. Today's song, though, comes from after he was, you know, quote-unquote, discovered, and one of his main uh, label releases when he was actually a signed artist, and it's called This Cowboy's Hat. And it, it, it's strangely linked to what we talked about today on the show. Um, in this story, Chris and this friend of his that has his hat are in this bar, and a couple of bikers come in, and they're the antagonists in the storyline. They want to start a fight. And Chris and his buddy just kind of ignore them. But eventually, one of the bikers announces his intent to violate the NAP, right? The non-aggression principle. He says, I think I'll rip that hat right off your head. And a line in the story says, this is when my, turn, my friend turned around and this is what he said. And he kind of goes off on all the reasons this hat means more to him than it could ever mean to them. And if you want to fight over this, this is a dumb choice. And you're going to have to fight everybody here. There's actually a lot in that to describe the relationship of citizens to their government. The government will always encroach on citizens' rights. That's why we had a restrictive document in the Constitution in the first place. Barack Obama, to his credit, got some things right about the Constitution. He said that the Constitution was a document of negative liberties, in that it said what the government was not allowed to do to you, but did not say what the government should do for you. He actually saw that as a problem. I find the statement accurate and not a problem. I find it to be a good thing. So that's why we have that restriction placed upon government. But there is a point where liberty is encroached upon far enough that consent of the government governed needs to be revoked. But there's 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 like that plays out different ways. You think of like a popular revolution or an uprising or a throw the bombs out voting moment. We can't wait on the collective to become sane. We have to remove to some level the consent of the governed individually. And say, I will not be your slave. I will use your own laws against you. I will be like a judo master. You give me a tax code where it's like 25 pages of what I have to do and a thousand pages of how I get out of it, I'm going to pay attention to the thousand pages. I'll play your game your way against you. 
When I can do something apart from you, I will. When I can resolve a conflict without you, I will. If I can have an adult beverage without paying you a tax, I will. If I can barter with my neighbor, I will. Whatever it is, I will do it. Today's show was about flipping that switch internally and taking charge of your own life and understanding when anyone, whether it be a person or an entity, has come far enough that you have to say, to hither thou shalt come and no further. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, there's always been groups of people that never could see eye to eye. But I always thought if they ever had a chance to sit down and talk face to face, they might realize they got a lot in common. Well, I was sitting in a coffee shop just having a cup to pass the time, swapping rodeo stories with this old cowboy friend of mine. When some motorcycle riders started snickering in the back and started poking fun at my friend's hat. And one old boy said, hey Tex, where'd you park your horse? My friend just pulled his hat down low, but they couldn't be ignored. One husky fella said, I think I'll rip that hat right off your head. That's when my friend turned around and this is what he said. Ride a black tornado across the western sky, rope an old blue norther and milk it till it's dry. Bulldog the Mississippi, and it's ears down flat. Long before you take this cowboy's hat, now partner, this old hat's better left alone. See, it used to be my daddy's. Last year he passed on My nephew skinned the rattler That makes up this old hat band But back in 69 He died in Vietnam Now the eagle feather Was given to me by an Indian friend of mine But someone ran him down Somewhere around that Arizona line And a real special lady Gave me this hat pin But I don't know if I'll ever see her again. You'll ride a black tornado across the western sky. Rope an old blue norther and milk it till it's dry. Bulldog the Mississippi and its ears down flat. Long before you take this cowboy's hat. Now, if your leather jacket means to you what this hat means to me, then I guess we understand each other and we'll just let it be. But if you still think it's funny, man, you got my back up against the wall. And if you touch my hat, you're going to have to fight us all. Well, right then I caught a little sadness in that gang leader's eyes. And he turned back to the others, and they all just kind of shuffled on outside. But when my friend turned back towards me, I noticed his old hat brim. Well, it was turned up in a big old Texas grill. You ride a black tornado across the western sky.
across the western sky. Rope an old bloom norther and we'll get to his dry. Bulldog the Mississippi and it's ears down flat. Long before you take this cowboy's hat. <laughs> 